Hello, and welcome back, uh, or welcome to a series of conversations on law and regulation in the upcoming Biden administration. I'm Adam White, director of the Scalia Law School's C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. And I'm glad that you joined us today for a discussion of energy and environmental policy. Now, we're calling this webinar series the Administrative State in Transition, and it surrounds, obviously, the, the transition to an administration of President Biden. We started on Tuesday with a discussion of White House regulatory oversight, featuring Professors Michael Livermore, Jennifer No, and Stuart Shapiro. If you missed it, then keep an eye on our website where we'll post the video and audio recordings. That conversation highlighted a number of issues that'll be important in the years ahead. And I know that today's discussion will too. I'm so glad we could be joined today by our speakers, three experts on energy and environmental law and regulation, uh, namely Lisa Heinzerling, Jean Grace, and Jonathan Adler. They'll each offer some opening remarks, followed by discussion, and then questions. And if you'd like to ask a question, please type it into Zoom's Q&A function. I'll get to as many of them as I possibly can. Um, now you've heard enough of me, on to the experts. Their biographies are available on our event's website. So let me offer just a brief introduction of each uh, when it's her or his's turn to speak. And we're beginning with Lisa Heinzerling. She's the Justice William J. Brennan Jr. Professor of Law at Georgetown University. In addition to her teaching and her widely read scholarship, she's an experienced practitioner. In 2007's Massachusetts versus EPA case, she wrote the briefs for the winning states. Later in 2009, she served as the EPA's Senior Climate Policy Council. Lisa, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here today uh, for this interesting panel. Twelve years ago this week, I was one of four EPA political appointees who started work at the agency on the first day of President Obama's first term. There was the White House liaison, two schedulers for the incoming administrator, and me. My official portfolio was climate change, as Adam mentioned, but in the early days, my work ranged far beyond climate policy because I was, for a short time, the only political appointee at the agency involved with substantive policy. I'd been a member of the EPA transition team, and I knew how much work had to be done both to undo decisions that the new administration thought were misguided and to develop new policies that the new administration thought were necessary. The task was daunting. And every day there were new questions, sort of like pop quizzes, about what needed to be done that minute to comply with a court order or a statutory deadline or instructions from the White House, including Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel's memo ordering agencies to freeze work on pending rules until political appointees could review them. At that time, EPA had 17,000 employees and a budget of $7.5 billion. The agency had, we thought, during the preceding administration, played fast and loose with both the environmental statutes it administered and the scientific evidence that was supposed to undergird the agency's work. Perhaps most worrisome, the White House had blocked EPA from resp responding to the, EPA, the Supreme Court's decision in Massachusetts versus EPA, holding that the Clean Air Act gave the agency the authority to regulate greenhouse gases and rejecting its policy reasons, saying it would decline to regulate greenhouse gases even if it had the authority to do so. Famously, EPA had, in the prior administration, sent an endangerment finding and a proposed regulation on greenhouse gases uh, from cars 
to the White House regulatory arm, that is the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, but that office had refused to open the email. So that moment, so troubling, we thought, was the prior administration's approach to environmental protection that the new administrator, Lisa Jackson's slogan for EPA in the first several months of that administration was simply, back on the job. I think of that transition now, and I can't help but think, boy, did we have it easy. Today, EPA has 14,000 employees. There's been a 3,000-person drop in agency personnel since the day I started work at the agency, and that alone is worrisome enough. That doesn't reflect the amount of significant uh, expertise and experience that has left the agency in the last several years among some of the most senior employees of the agency. The agency's budget is more than a billion dollars less than it was 10 years ago. Scientific advisory panels have been stacked with people chosen despite or perhaps because of the close ties to the industry EPA regulates. The outgoing administration has laid waste to the entire Obama climate uh, regulatory program. It's also issued rules, general rules, aimed at making environmental protection even harder than it usually is. For example, there's the rule on scientific transparency that's meant to discourage the agency from relying on foundational scientific studies showing a link between particulate matter pollution and human illness and death. There's the rule on cost-benefit analysis that's meant to highlight the direct benefits of rules, that is the benefits that come from reducing the very pollutant targeted by the statutory provision being invoked, as if we shouldn't be pleased when a rule does more than good one, one good thing at once. A final rule just issued yesterday purports to set tighter rules for deciding whether to regulate any sources other than power plants under Section 111 of the Clean Air Act. Despite the fact that this pro the proposed rule for this final rule didn't propose what the final rule does. In fact, it has an entirely different title and subject from the rule that had been proposed. So in short, in my opinion at least, the outgoing leadership of the EPA has broken a lot of things and left quite a mess. And they're running through the tape. They're issuing rules without the 30-day waiting periods that are normally accompany uh, rulemaking. They're issuing final rules, as I suggested, without proposed rules and more. So there may be a lot more work in the next week that the new administration will feel the need to undo. Now, the good news is, not for anybody else, but for the incoming administration, there may be some good news, which is that to the very end, again, in my view, the outgoing administration is exhibiting the same cavalierness toward law, toward science, toward legal process that it showed in its very first days. The notices of rulemaking have gotten longer, the explanations longer, but in my view, not much better. As we've seen in the, um, we've seen this record, this attitude and the judicial response to it reflected in a quite terrible record on judicial review. That is, the administration has lost, I think, a historically large number of cases on, uh, on uh, review of agency action. So it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of patience to sort through uh, what the outgoing administration has left, 
left behind to undo what it needs to go and to rebuild the agency's infrastructure and its regulatory programs. And unlike 12 years ago, all of EPA's work will be overseen by a solidly conservative block of six justices. Several of these justices have already indicated that they'll be skeptical of agency interpretations that recognize the agency's power to tackle new problems under old statutes. And five of these justices, at least, have already seemed prepared to vitalize the long-dormant non-delegation doctrine. So together, at least in my view, these legal developments signal two messages. The first message is eat to EPA, beware of using an old statute to tackle a new problem. To Congress, beware of using a new statute to tackle a new problem. The conservative justices have also learned to love their shadow docket. These are the cases in which the justices issue orders without granting review, without full briefing, without oral argument, and usually without an opinion. Steve Gladick, has counted 40 government requests in this administration for emergency or extraordinary relief from the Supreme Court. Um, The court has granted complete or partial relief in 27 of these cases. This is how the clean power plan of the Obama administration went down. It wasn't through a fully briefed, argued, and and explained uh, case. It was through the shadow docket. So, Let me just conclude with a little bit more positive note. I think EPA, again, faces a difficult time after a presidential transition with lots of work. And I'm going to offer several ways um, that maybe that job could be made easier. One, I think the the new administration should fight for the um, uh, uh, reversal of the eligible rules under the Congressional Review Act in Congress. Second. And this weirdly makes its job harder at the beginning, but I think will be better for the administration in the long run, is notice and comment the heck out of everything. I just completely fill the federal register with notices of proposed rulemaking. And if there's any doubt, do a notice and comment period. It, 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 at this point in this term, I think it can't hurt much and it could hurt, help a whole lot. Um, They should reconsider the White House role in reviewing rules. As you probably know, for 40 years, the administration or the presidents have all required rules to go to the White House for for review before being issued. In my view, the Obama administration lost precious time, especially on climate change, but on other environmental problems as well, by delaying, weakening, and stopping agency rules. If the administration decides to to review the rules at all. I think it should review them expeditiously with clear lines of authority and a clear process for the agency to repeal delays or rejections by the White House. They might even consider waiving review altogether for rules that are, and this is a kind of paradox, but for rules that are really important to the administration. If those rules are important, you want to get them out now and not wait 60, 90, 120 days for OIRA to complete its work. So the last thing I would just say is to the incoming administration to make EPA's job easier, let the head of the EPA actually be the head of the EPA, not the aides in the White House, not the OIRA head, not the economic advisors, not the new climate czar, nobody else. Let the head of the EPA run the EPA. I think that'll be the key to getting work done quickly. It can seem right now at the beginning of administration that four years is a long time. It's not.
Thanks. Thanks, Lisa. Um, maybe before we move on, one thing you said just piqued my interest. You referred back to Lisa Jackson's slogan for the EPA. Do you have a slogan for this EPA, uh, or would you like to offer a slogan for for this next EPA? Well, I, I, I this may be a joke, but it's kind of serious. Notice and comment everything. Got it. <laughs> Duly noted. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, our next speaker is Jean Grace. Jean is the general counsel of the American Clean Power Association an organization that advocates for the transformation of the U.S. power grid to renewable power. Before joining ACP, uh, he worked in various legal positions at the federal government, in private practice, and at environmental organizations. Welcome, Gene. Thanks, Adam, and uh, appreciate the invitation to be uh, with you all today. Um, progress on climate and clean energy does not come knocking every day. And the good news is that the Biden plan represents the most ambitious clean energy vision ever from a U.S. president. It is far-reaching in scope, covering infrastructure, transportation, and federal investment. The cornerstone to his vision is the goal of 100% clean energy by 2035. Zeroing out emissions in the power industry was chosen first because it is the fastest place reductions can be realized in this decade. Currently, less than 40% of U.S. power generation comes from carbon-free sources, renewables, nukes, and hydro. That means that natural gas and coal combine for nearly 60% of the U.S. power mix. To put this another way, to achieve carbon-free generation by 2035, it is estimated that almost 5 billion megawatt hours of natural gas and coal would have to be replaced by 2035. In short, this challenge is daunting, but it also presents a lot of opportunities. While the target might seem like a long shot, the Biden administration will have many tools to put the U.S. on this path. I'm going to briefly run through some of the key tools in this toolbox, ones that we can expect the federal government to use in the upcoming months. Of note, Biden is supposed to announce more of his policy priorities later today. First, to get the ball rolling on meeting the target, we can expect in the first 100 days an executive order containing some form of a climate action plan. It will likely be similar in nature to what Obama did at the outset of the second term, but be more ambitious. The climate plan will also likely include a declaration that the U.S. plans to rejoin the Paris Agreement, updating the Obama administration's domestic climate goals, and laying out a plan to reduce emissions from the energy sector. To achieve those ends, the climate plan will likely commit the federal government to purchasing renewable energy for a large percent of its supply. It currently purchases less than 10% renewables. In addition, public lands and waters hold vast potential for renewables but only a small percentage are currently located on them. To take advantage of this, the climate plan will likely set aggressive goals for permitting clean energy on these lands and waters. The sleeping giant though in the president's toolbox to lower emissions and spur clean energy is clearly EPA's authority under the Clean Air Act. Unfortunately, that authority can't be exercised by a stroke of the pen. In order to kickstart that process, the climate action plan will likely direct EPA to undertake rulemakings regulating carbon. This will include reversing the Trump-era efforts to water down his authority, including repealing the Affordable Clean Energy Rule and replacing it with a policy similar to the Clean Power Plan. However, the replacement rule will likely be more ambitious and modified to withstand legal scrutiny. There are also a host of other rulemakings that will have to be undertaken to ensure that carbon regulation can be meaningful. For example, the Climate Plan will likely direct the Office of Management and Budget to issue a rule creating a new and more accurate social cost of carbon, taking into account the full impact of global climate change 
and setting a discount rate that encourages action now. This will allow the administration to help justify more stringent federal carbon regulations, like a Clean Power Plan 2.0. There are a slew of other big and small executive and regulatory actions that will likely be part of the Biden Climate Action Plan. In fact, there are probably too many to cover in the time we have. But before moving to likely congressional action, I want to briefly note the importance of FERC in this mix. Even under the Trump administration, work has already been done at that agency to drive carbon pricing in wholesale energy markets and ensure that transmission can deliver the amount of clean energy needed to meet climate goals. FERC will be critical for fast-tracking the time in which clean energy can be deployed to meet the 2035 target. Now, moving on to what Congress can do. Unfortunately, the Biden administration might not be able to get a ton of help from Congress in the way of major climate legislation. Even with democratic control of Senate, it might not be enough to achieve big ticket climate legislation, such as an economy-wide price on carbon. The main obstacle is simple. It's the Senate filibuster. As things stand now, effectively all major climate bills would face the filibuster, meaning they will require a supermajority to pass, 60 votes. So Democrats will need at least 10 sympathetic Republican votes to get anything passed a filibuster related to major climate action. However, future COVID relief, climate and infrastructure and economic recovery bills could offer opportunities to enact modest clean energy programs. In addition, democratic control certainly will help in some areas, funding for climate action and clean energy through the appropriation process, allowing the majority leader Schumer to bring more environmental bills to a vote and getting Biden's climate team through the Senate so they can get to work sooner. This will be critical as so much of what is going to be done on clean energy will be at the executive level. A bright spot for movement on clean energy legislation could be the changing spending and taxation in the budget reconciliation process. As it bypasses the filibuster and requires only a simple majority vote in the Senate to pass, but even that is still a difficult proposition with the Senate split 50-50. In addition, due to procedural rules, it is hard to get major climate size policies done through this process. One of the toughest restrictions is it can only be done for tax and spending provision. I think we may have temporarily lost Gene's video for just a moment. Let's just hold. Am I back? Uh, Gene, you're back, but maybe you could back up just a sentence or two. Thanks. Oh, it sounds like there's something wrong with my, because an alarm just went off. So I guess I had a power outage for a second. I apologize for that. Um, okay. So I was on congressional stuff uh, talking about uh, the budget reconciliation process. I'm not sure where, um, and some of the really kind of the procedural uh, hurdles you have to get over with respect to the uh, um, budget reconciliation process. And I was noting one of the toughest restrictions is that it can only be done for tax and spending provisions. It can't be used to make regulatory policy change. Thus, extraneous provisions simply setting climate policies or creating new programs, programs are not allowed. Just about any kind of tax charge or expenditure is fair game, though, along with existing and new mandatory spending. So tax credits and other clean energy incentives could fit into this framework and potentially are in the mix for passage in this process. Infrastructure spending can also be used to support clean energy or upgrading the electric grid and could fit into the reconciliation process. It might even be possible to implement a federal clean energy standard through a set of funding mechanisms, through credits and penalties that can be passed through this process 
instead of being imposed directly. It could be tied to transmission charges, utilities paid to move electricity over transmission lines, adjusting the charges that cost uh, less to transport clean energy. In other words, while explicitly imposing emission performance standards would in effect require a 60 majority vote, it may be possible to drive the transition to clean energy through the reconciliation process. Finally, assuming the Democrats decide to use it, the Congressional Review Act could come into play, as Lisa noted. Reversing some of the recent Trump era rules will make it harder for the Biden administration to drive clean energy, such as the transparency rule, the cost benefit, and the new source performance standard that uh, Lisa's already mentioned. While there is certainly no silver bullet for meeting Biden's 2035 target for the electric sector, using all these tools combined will be crucial for getting us on that path. Thanks. Thanks, Gene. And maybe we could just stick with you for just one more moment. You touched on FERC's role in all of this. Would you maybe take a moment or two just to spell out in a little more detail how um, FERC might be integrated um, more into the, the, the general executive branch planning process of, of energy policy? Sure. Well, it's obviously an independent agency, so the executive branch has limited control over it outside of the appointment of the commissioners. But uh, by June, uh, there should be a Democratic majority on the Federal Energy, Energy Regulatory Commission. And by then, uh, it's assumed that Biden will appoint a Democratic uh, chairman. And I think FERC's agenda really is uh, front and center of trying to meet Biden's clean energy targets. You really, you can create these targets, but you really can't. Uh, renewables are obviously location constrained. So you gotta locate them wherever you have the capacity. And so you need transmission to get there. Um, and it currently is not there. And it's creating huge costs for delivering renewables, curtailment for renewables. So the FERC has a huge role in seeing that through. And also in trying to internalize carbon pricing in the markets. Because the FERC under uh, the uh, Trump administration essentially has been mitigating state clean energy policies, essentially giving them a haircut, saying that they hurt the markets. And hopefully uh, a Biden uh, FERC will reverse that policy. And rather than actually trying to stand in the way of state clean energy programs, will help to try to achieve them in the markets. And so incorporating a carbon pricing into the energy markets really can go a long way to help kind of facilitating uh, something like a clean energy standard at the federal level and actually making it more cost effective. So it really can't be underestimated how much FERC can play a role in this process. Thanks, Gene. Uh, our third speaker today is Jonathan Adler. He's the uh, Johan Verhey Memorial Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve University, where he also directs the Burke Center on Environmental Law. In addition to his teaching and scholarship, he's been deeply involved in litigation on major issues of federalism and administrative law. And if you look closely, I think you'll see him drinking out of a Waters of the United States themed coffee mug uh, sent out by one of the George Mason University's journals, The Green Bag. I think I got that right, didn't I, Jonathan? Yep. yep. Sorry, yes. I'm always marketing. Please welcome. Join us. Uh, my, it, yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Um, uh, it's fun to be here with with Lisa and Jean uh, and to talk about uh, these issues. Um, what I would thought I would be useful for me to do is to talk a little bit about the ambition of the Biden Harris uh, environmental agenda and to think about kind of what's easy and what's hard, to think about what are things that can be done quickly, because certainly for some environmental issues, a premium will be placed on speed, and what sorts of issues and questions necessarily require the long, arduous slog through administrative process. 
And I think there are opportunities to act quickly. And I think there are uh, areas where the administration really has no choice but to take a slow and deliberate pace. Um, in terms of thinking about this, I know, you know, we have an audience that has a range of of folks that are real admin law jocks and, and those uh, uh, that aren't. Kind of two rules of thumb that I think are worth keeping in mind in, in this conversation. First is that in administrative law and administrative process, there is often a trade-off between speed and, and safety. That the faster you try and do something uh, for a variety of reasons, whether it's skimping on process, whether it's the likelihood of errors that can raise problems in judicial review, the faster you go, the more likely uh, you are to face some sort of legal or other jeopardy, the less likely your policy initiative is to be successful. Uh, there are exceptions, but that's a good rule of thumb to keep in mind, that that it's always possible to slow down, be a little more careful, go through that notice and comment process a little bit more carefully uh, to bulletproof uh, something against potential legal or other challenge. Uh, another rule of thumb to keep in mind is that as a general rule, if you're trying to undo what a prior administration did, and certainly the Biden administration wants to undo a lot of what the Trump administration did, you generally have to put in at least as much work as was put in to, to install the policy in the first place. If something was adopted as a regulation through notice and comment rulemaking, it will usually require a notice and comment rulemaking to undo that regulation. But if something was done through, say, an executive order or a guidance with relatively little notice and little process, well, then you might be able to undo that with just as little process or notice. So there are exceptions here, but I think it was useful just to, to put those rules, rules of thumb on the table uh, to keep in mind as, we, as I go through briefly what I think some of the opportunities and pitfalls uh, that the Biden administration faces are in environmental and energy policy. Starting off with the quick and easy, uh, I think uh, perhaps as early as the afternoon of January 20th, we will see executive orders uh, that are reversing or undoing uh, executive orders and policies of the Trump administration. The Trump administration was very aggressive with executive orders, uh, very aggressive in areas related to environmental policy, executive orders concerning regulatory review and regulatory reform executive orders directing agencies to pursue specific policy goals uh, within, their, within their authority, such as the revision of, to the waters of the United States rule or uh, policies with regard to pipeline permitting and so on. And just as those could be put into place with the stroke of a pen by the Trump administration, those can be un, undone by the stroke of a pen by the Biden administration. And so I would expect both to see some executive orders undone rescinded completely, and others to be replaced or supplemented, uh, which has been common in the regulatory review space in the past, where the Clinton administration updated and revised effectively prior regulatory review executive orders and so on. I think we will see these with regard to government-wide practices, so what the process should be for regulatory review. I expect to see executive orders requiring agencies across the board to consider things, to consider environmental justice concerns as part of the regulatory and policy review process. I expect to see something like that on climate, requiring all agencies throughout the federal government to consider how climate change should influence the actions and decisions they take. And one thing I would note is that while historically we have thought that you couldn't impose these sorts of obligations 
on independent agencies. Over the holidays, uh, the Office of Legal Counsel posted on the Justice Department website a memorandum that was apparently written in 2019 uh, that formally adopted the position that the White House may impose regulatory review requirements on independent agencies. And a former Clinton OIRA director, Sally Katzen, I know, is among those who have suggested that the Biden administration should embrace this and use this a way of forcing agencies like FERC, like the SEC, like the CFTC to uh, incorporate climate change and environmental justice as opposed to other policies into their policy development process. And that's something that I think this administration could do. We'll see if they are, are that aggressive. I also would not be surprised if we see executive orders about specific policy areas. And this is important if the administration wants to move quickly, because as the Trump administration showed, you can let the Senate-confirmed head of the, uh, the EPA or the Army Corps of Engineers or what have you develop a policy. But you can also do an executive order basically instructing those agencies what policy they should be aimed at. at implementing or adopting. And particularly if the Biden administration is worried about the time it will take to get people confirmed by the Senate uh, to get not just uh, cabinet secretaries, but undersecretaries and assistant secretaries and so on, issuing executive orders up front, articulating what some of the specific policy aims are going to be is a way of getting that process moving before you have people in place uh, to issue those directions. Similarly, uh, guidance documents, enforcement policies, those can change right away. One that I'm going to be paying attention to very quickly or, or paying attention to very closely is the Department of Justice under the Trump administration adopted memoranda limiting the use of uh, so what, are, what are called supplemental environmental projects as part of settlements in environmental enforcement cases, basically limiting the extent to which part of a settlement can be a company or firm that had violated environmental law agreeing to take some sort of mitigating effort or fund some sort of project in lieu of fines or other formal punishments. The Trump administration had said, we don't like this. We don't think this is authorized and should not happen. Uh, I would expect to see the Biden administration work relatively quickly to undo that. Last on the super quick and easy things, uh, I think at the Council on Environmental Quality, um, there are new uh, new regulations under NEPA that the Trump administration adopted it takes a long time to redo or undo those regulations, but it would not take very long necessarily to adopt guidances about how to interpret those regulations, particularly as they apply to climate change. And so that's something that I think the Biden administration could do quickly and I expect it to do quickly. Uh, the Congressional Review Act was already mentioned. Uh, I think that there will be some use of it, but there will have to be some choices about how to use it because it takes up floor time uh, in the House and Senate. And that floor time will be a precious commodity for the budget, uh, perhaps for an impeachment trial, uh, perhaps for other matters. Um, the Trump administration, like the Obama administration, was not very careful about not finalizing regulations in the review period subject to the Congressional Review Act. In fact, the Trump administration continued to issue rules at a furious pace in the last few months of the administration. Um, according to the account assembled by the uh, GW Regulatory Studies Center, there are over 1,300 regulation, final regulations that could be subject to the Congressional Review Act. At least 200 of those are uh, concerned environmental policy. 167 of those regulations 
are environmental from the Environmental Protection Agency, but they also include regulations from NOAA, from the Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, Interior Department, Energy Department, Transportation Department. So a lot of potential targets for the Congressional Review Act. I think things like the tightening of the regulations or the narrowing of the regulations under the Migratory Bird Act uh, is, is a likely target. I think some of the rules related to uh, use of science might be as well. But lastly, just talking about the things that are more difficult, you know, undoing and reversing Trump administration regulations is relatively straightforward, but it's time consuming. If you want to have a new NSPS for uh, methane emissions from oil and gas uh, operations, that's legally clearly doable. Uh, if you take the time to do it right, doesn't present a significant legal risk, but it does take time. Uh, one question I have is whether the Biden administration will try and take advantage of the use of interim final rulemakings, which the Supreme Court last term in its Little Sisters of the Poor decision suggested was more broadly available than a lot of us had thought. And uh, you know, I'm among those that's really curious to see whether the Biden administration tries to take advantage of that, and if they do, how the courts uh, will will respond. That's one way to try and accelerate actions. Um, one thing I, I would also note is I think that kind of tightening the screws on regulations that agencies have long adopted or long pursued or that are clearly within agency authority, I think are attractive things for the Biden administration to do because there's relatively less legal uh, uh, legal vulnerability. Tightening the NAC standards, adopting more stringent rules for uh, greenhouse gas emissions by sector, things like that, relatively low uh, legal risk. Again, time-consuming to go through the regulatory process, but something they can easily do. I think a clean power plan 2.0 is incredibly high risk. The Supreme Court before uh, did not seem too enamored uh, or friendly to the clean power plan. If anything, it's likely to be even more hostile today. I think if the, if the administration wants to do these larger ticket regulatory initiatives, it's going to try to have to find a way to get congressional support. And the filibuster is not the only obstacle there. I think even getting 50 votes so that the vice president can cast the tie-breaking vote uh, will be a challenge in some of these areas, uh, because I'm not sure that senators like Joe Manchin are always going to be on board. Last thing I'll say um, is we, I think this administration is going to spend a lot of time thinking and focusing on uh, use of fiscal instruments, use of spending authority, um, as a way of advancing environmental policy, especially in the climate area. I think both legislatively and administratively, uh, there will be opportunities to avoid legal risk and make progress there that will be harder to make if the aim is to expand federal regulation. I apologize for going over, Adam, and I will stop there. Well, thanks. Thanks, Jonathan. We'll give Lisa and Jean an opportunity, just a moment to offer any reactions they might have had to what others have said before we go on to Q&A. But Jonathan, just a quick question. I, I found the the Trump administration's sort of eagerness to keep putting out more more rules during the clean, uh, Congressional Review Act window to, to be pretty interesting, to say the least. I mean, do you have any sort of interpretation of what their reasoning was? Are they just not worried that things are going to get overturned? Or You know, I you know, I don't I don't know why. I mean, we know that Susan Dudley at the end of the Bush administration, um, both for from the standpoint of why create targets that could be easily overturned. But I think also, given her academic work, just a belief that there are questions about the democratic legitimacy of rules that are really finalized as an administration is out the door and that that 
on the margin, it's it's just better just not to do that unless it's something that is time sensitive or that is mandated under statute. I think the Obama administration was less concerned about that, probably in part because the CRA hadn't really been used very much. And so there wasn't as much focus on it. I, I think in the Trump administration's case, part of it is they got a slow start, right? A lot of the things they did in their first year or two weren't very effective or very successful. And by the time they had people in there who knew how to turn the gears in the administrative process, they wanted to get things done. I also fear there was a bit of kind of reckless, let's just get done what we can do on our way out the door. And, you know, there are some rules. I think it was Lisa who mentioned the the 111 rule that has the 3% uh, if you're not responsible, this sector is not responsible for 3% of emissions. It can't be can't be a source of endangerment and therefore can't be regulated as kind of little kind of clever traps that they tried to set in. And, you know, I'm not a fan of that. I, I think that, you know, on the one hand, the administrative pro- administrative agencies have to continue their work. But if you're dealing with areas that are of political salience, the responsible thing for any administration to do is to think hard about whether to go forward with rules during that that um, that midnight period. And I think, you know, I would prefer it if that were the norm, that we we saw a reduction of regulatory activity in the last two or three months, as opposed to an acceleration. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not head of OIRA. I'm not in the White House. I don't get to make these calls. Well, if Susan Dudley is on the webinar, you might have a Marshall McLuhan moment where she tells you what she what she really thinks. Um, obviously, the CRA is incredibly important because if Congress rolls anything back under it, there's a statutory block against the agency doing it over without new statutory authorization. So it could be incredibly important. Um, Lisa, Jean, do you have any initial reactions to things that have been said so far before I I ask a few questions? Maybe maybe we'll start with Lisa. Yeah, a couple of things. I I agreed with almost everything you said, Jonathan, actually, about the the relative, what what things are easy, what things are hard. Um, And I would have even gone farther, maybe, than you did on talking about the legitimacy of these last-minute rules that that especially when the president is lame duck, right? And especially in the last week we've had to have an agency continuing to issue rules as they go out to the door, it just it just doesn't feel right. I realize that we'll see whether they're overturned, but it, it just doesn't doesn't feel uh uh very good. On interim final rules, I always thought that this was just I mean it is an oxymoron, right? And um, it's such an odd concept. I do wonder whether the Little Sisters of the Poor case, which seems to give its blessing to that, that did arise in a context where it could, it might have been a guidance document or it might have been a rule. And so it was sort of like we were going to hedge our bets and do the notice and comment. If an agency went in always clearly knowing that it had a rule and tried to do that, I don't know whether it would make a difference to the court or not. And I worry enough about, honestly, the, the um, political priors of this Supreme Court that I wouldn't chance it. Um, I, I wouldn't chance it if, if I were at an agency. The IFR and I issue, guess we'll get a chance to talk a little bit more about the Clean Power Plan probably in a little bit. Sorry, Adam. Yeah, no, just, we definitely will. The, I, the IFR interim final rule issue was one of the ones I wanted to ask about, actually. I mean, Jonathan, maybe if you want to respond to that quickly. Uh, do you see much of a chance or, or much of an opening after the Little Sisters of the Poor case for the, say, the Biden EPA to really push 
forward with with leading with an interim final rule that serves also as a notice and comment rulemaking that would really revolutionize the rulemaking process. Yeah, I mean, so you know, if I'm if I'm the Biden administration, um, I'm going to try. I, I'm going to try it once, and the first time I try it is probably going to not be too high profile a rule. Um, you know, I I would want to give the D.C. Circuit a chance to figure out what to do with the little sister's opinion in a case that doesn't have really heavy political overtones because, you know, one of the, and this came up, I know one of the questions that was raised, if you spend a lot of time working on something in an agency and it goes down, you're, you're kind of starting, you're often starting over. And so, you know, and that can mean uh, worrying about being able to finish something in, in a, in a, in a single term, if, you, if, if you're worried about that, or if it's an issue that's urgent. So, you know, so, I, I I agree with Lisa that you know how the Supreme Court looks at the use of an inter- interim final rule might depend a lot on the context in which it's used. But I think there's enough in the opinion that says you know it, it's a, it's available at least sometimes, and so maybe in a case where um, there was an Obama rule, the Trump administration rescinded it, the Trump. Uh, administration rescission and replacement is itself in litigation. Um, maybe lower courts don't agree. I think that's the case with one of the methane rules. And it's a way of saying to the courts, look, we've obviously got to fix this. No one benefits from there being a lot of uncertainty. Maybe this is kind of like the Little Sisters case in that the background of what we're doing is such that it's appropriate to do an interim final, but we're, say, not going to do an interim final for, say, Clean Power Plan 2.0 because that would look like we're being a bit a bit too clever. So I would probably approach it kind of like that. Gene, do you have any uh, reactions to what we've discussed so far? Um, no, just an agreement on the CRA. It seems like, uh, say, take the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. I think it's a substantially similar uh, provision you were referring to, that you can't come back and do a world that's similar. And I think it's uh, creating some reluctance to use the CRA, um, and it's somewhat of a deregulatory tool. But I think also with some things like the MBTA, they're not even effective until after Obama takes office. So I think he's probably will end up leaning to just make them, you know, postpone them for 60 days and then put out a repeal. And then on the clean power plan, I something like we can talk about that more. I think waiting for Congress to do something on it is probably not going to happen. So and trying to use the authority, and I think they can do things inside the fence line uh, to get there, like on the reduced utilization. But it sounds like we can talk more about that later. Well, let's talk about the Clean Power Plan right away. Uh, Professor Richard Pierce uh, offers a question, uh, one that's already an issue that's been alluded to a couple of times. Uh, can a plan like the Clean Power Plan actually survive Supreme Court review, um, especially in terms of giving or the EPA's assertion of authority to regulate beyond the so-called fence line? I have a visitor walking into my office now. Um <laughs> That's live television, folks. Um, and uh, so Richard Pierce asks what we can expect from the Supreme Court. And at the same time, Michael Quirk uh, points out in a question, uh, what's really the risk here? If the Supreme Court or the lower courts strike down the EPA's assertion of authority, there is still the baseline status quo under the existing uh, court uh, decisions that have you know, allowed at least some regulation so far to move forward. Does anybody want to take that first? Go ahead, Lisa. Sure. On the legal risk, I, I think it's huge. Uh, the, Supreme Court, <laughs> the Supreme Court stayed that rule before it was reviewed by any federal court, any lower court. 
went directly and stayed an agency rule, not a court ruling, an agency rule. I don't know of any case in its history when the Supreme Court has done that. So it felt very strongly that that rule was uh, was unlawful. And so unless there's something happens that's different, I don't see why this why the agency would go that same route again. The Supreme Court's gotten less friendly rather than more. Justice Kennedy is gone, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and, and uh, Gorsuch are on it. So I, I'm very uh, worried about that. And the other thing that's that's quite gnaws at me about that is we don't know why it went down. You know, there's no opinion. And it grace us with an opinion, tell us what's wrong with it. So we don't know. I, I agree that it may be the question of whether they went beyond the fence line, but it could have been Professor Tribe's argument based on the non-delegation doctrine that they didn't have any authority to regulate those sources uh, to begin with. So we don't really know why it went down, and I think it would be risky, um, risky to try it again. As for what do you have to lose? You have to lose all that time in an administration committed to doing something about climate change. You just can't spend that amount of time, resources, political capital, and everything else doing something that's that's going to be a loser. And before anybody else jumps in, um, while well, my daughter Hannah walked in and distracted me, I misconstrued Michael Quirk's question. Uh, his question more specifically was, what's the risk of swinging for the fences and pursuing a secondary NAX for greenhouse gas emissions? Um, if the EPA tries that and that uh, gets struck down by the courts, they can still fall back to other tools. Um, go ahead, Lisa or Jean or Jonathan. Sure, I can jump in. Yeah, and I think there are other provisions like Section 115 that could be an economy-wide. There's obviously a lot of legal risk with that. But just getting back to 111D, I think there are ways, and I agree with Lisa, we don't really know why the court granted the stay outside of we assume it was the likelihood to succeed on the merits related to generation shifting. But there are ways to do it inside the fence line. You look at stronger heat rate improvements, you look at re reduced utilization, and you can get fairly strong targets. And I think the real question is there's a risk of going and getting it struck down, but then the inaction even seems to be a greater risk because waiting for Congress to pass some type of major climate legislation or give EPA more authority under the Clean Air Act to do something is probably really not in the cards for the foreseeable future. You've got Biden out there with really aggressive clean energy goals, and how are you going to get there in 2035? I mean, take wind energy. It takes a couple of years to permit the wind. It takes seven to 10 years to permit the transmission. So even getting the rule out there will somewhat give some certainty to the industry to start building. You get FERC has a rule where they have to plan transmission if you have a federal rule. And so as long as it's not stayed and on the books, and we've seen this in the past, you have rules that are out there. They're ultimately struck down, but they can get things kind of moving. And then ultimately, you know, things, you know, you'd get emission reductions from that. And I guess there really aren't any other tools outside of 115 that could really, you know, do that major carbon pricing from a regulatory perspective. So to me, the inaction is kind of the biggest risk. Uh, I would uh, just jump in and say, I, mean, I think there are, there are three things that the EPA could try and do that I think are all high risk. I think a clean power plan that looks like what the Obama administration did is high risk. I think a greenhouse gas tax is high risk under UARG. I think Section 115 is high risk under UARG. Um, and if if my goal was do things that within existing authority that uh, are not as high risk, I would focus on um, the sector by sector things you can do. You know, oil and gas operations, landfills, etc. Uh, uh, tighter rule for aircraft and so on. Uh, you can do a lot with motor vehicles. You can do a lot. Uh, to clear away the 
the obstacles the Trump administration tried to throw up in the way of California. There are things that you can do with co-benefits. Now, there's some legal risk there, I think, but it's less legal risk than going straight at greenhouse gas emissions. So, for example, tightening max standards on ozone or on particulates and so on are going to get you carbon benefits. Uh, they're going to get you large carbon benefits. My own view, and Lisa and I may disagree here, but one value of having OIRA in, involved in the process, if the right people are there, is to make sure that when EPA is tightening the NAC standards, even if carbon reductions are part of the reason why EPA is really doing it, EPA is sure to, to give a justification that sounds in the traditional rationales for, for NAC standard settings, because that's what the courts are going to want to see, even if we all know, hey, there's some great carbon gains here too. So, um, I think NEPA guidance matters. I think figuring out how, to, uh, if we're looking for things that uh, might actually have bipartisan buy-in and that you might even be able to get put into uh, legislation, um, green infrastructure and reducing the planning, scoping, and time process. Um, you know, J.B. Rule and some others have talked about what happens when the Green New Deal meets the old Green Deal. And there's a real problem there. Uh, permitting systems that were designed to be navigated by large utilities and by oil companies aren't very friendly to uh, wind energy companies and, and the like. And there's some real opportunities to uh, get folks that don't like the the permitting delays and folks that want to see lots more uh, progress on low carbon energy sources to to come together and 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 find ways of accelerating those sorts of projects. And then you can use fiscal tools and spending to accelerate deployment in ways that don't produce the same degree of legal risk as as trying to find new regulatory tools. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about legislation in a while, but since the term Green New Deal has come up, and it sometimes means different things to different people, and I'm sure it's a term that we're going to hear sort of bandied about in the first months of the Biden administration, how should we understand the term Green New Deal? I mean, what operationally does it mean right now, or is it still sort of, it means different things to different people? Lisa? Well... I think that the Green New Deal, I mean, if we're talking about the document known as the Green New Deal, the resolution uh, in Congress, and and I, I think this is probably a good way to understand it in general, even outside that document, but there's a way in which, to me, it's an effort to bring together constituencies that might not always work together, but that to, to bring a, a just approach, a worker-sensitive approach, uh, a race-sensitive approach to climate regulation, right? To do climate regulation and to do it well enough that it um, avoids the biggest problems, but to do it with sensitivity to all of these other things that they're also trying to do. And in that, with that perspective, it strikes me as actually a great idea. Not a crazy idea, not a silly idea, very ambitious to be sure, very progressive for sure, but a, a great idea in bringing all of these kinds of, I think, um, policies and aims and constituencies together. Anybody else want to add to that or should I move on to the next question? I, I was just going to say, I think a lot of the people use it for the idea to also refer to the idea to to significant levels of public investment in green infrastructure in particular. And I think that, you know, in, in terms of the political environment, depending how that's done, 
um, there are opportunities there that don't necessarily exist with regulatory strategies because everybody likes infrastructure money if it's coming to their district. And and we've always been we've been promised infrastructure weeks for the past four years. I'm not sure we ever actually got one. Um, But there is the opportunity, I think, to build a coalition where you're you're spending on infrastructure that a lot of folks on the right want. um, uh, But you're also doing it in a way that deals with some of the equity and justice concerns Lisa mentioned, but also focuses on uh, lower carbon, lower environmental impact infrastructure and facilitating transitions away from carbon based fuels. And this is Gene. I'll just add, I agree with Lisa as a policy document, or at least what I thought she was saying, it's a policy document. I don't think it was necessarily particularly helpful in the sense. I think some of the uh, special committee on climate and the ENC bill a little bit more real world about, you know, there are solutions that are already out there for meeting climate goals where the Green New Deal was talking about a moonshot and wasn't really taking, you know, stock of what we already can do. Um, but as for raising uh, environmental justice and, you know, good paying labor jobs and clean energy, I think it was a helpful kind of uh, document in that sense to bring that to the forefront. We'll get back to legislation in, in a few moments, both on the spending side and, and the regulatory side. But before we do, uh, Professor Jeff Lubber has asked a question about the litigation that's still in the courts over Trump administration rules. And he asks, are there any Trump administration regulatory rollback, environmental rollbacks that have been or could still be challenged in court um, that the Biden administration, its Justice Department might settle or, or seek remands of? If anybody could sort of just speak on that. The, broad subject of what happens with these pending cases and, and what opportunities that might present. That'd be, that'd be useful. Lisa. Um, I mean, virtually everything they've done in the environment has either been challenged or will be challenged. So I don't think there'll be any shortage of opportunities to do um, these kinds of of, um, resolutions. So I think they could, some cases they could settle, um, uh, I know this has been a practice that uh, conservatives have uh, railed against, calling it sue and settle and so forth, but it strikes me as perfectly open to the Biden administration to decide that we um, we agree with the, the, the lawsuit and we're going to take action uh, to um, to change what we've done. You can also seek a voluntary remand. That is, when something is challenged in court, you can say to the court, look, you know what, can we take this back? We, the agency, EPA, take this rule back and we'd like to work on it. And, and in the meantime, don't decide anything, you know. And um, those are routinely given. Some people don't like them, but again, those are, those are routinely given. So my guess is there are lists at the Justice Department transition team right now of all of those kinds of um, both situations and the options for addressing them and probably some ideas about which cases um, will be treated in those ways. Anybody else? I was just going to say that, you know, there are always cases that are that are hard calls. I mean, if something's already been briefed and there's been oral arguments, you typically figure that, that you're 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 done. Unless it's a unless it's a huge priority, you're you're kind of done with that. If there's been a final judgment at one level, at the district court level, or even at the circuit court level, that's an easy opportunity to make that sort of decision. Um, you know, we saw the Trump administration try to just unilaterally suspend the effectiveness of regulations very early on. The courts were very unhappy with that. Uh, unless there's expressed statutory authority, that's generally not something you can do. Uh, that, but um, the Trump administration was generally successful. And as Lisa noted, courts 
generally will accept the idea that, look, if the administration is going to go through the process of undoing something and tells us, um, we're happy to to press pause and, and give them the time to do that. So that happened with the Clean Power Plan. That happened um, with some others. One little wrinkle I will throw in is that um, uh, there is some question about how much explanation will be needed to re- uh, be given to reverse course. And after the DACA decision uh, from the Supreme Court, um, that, that decision seems to indicate that it's not enough for the new administration to say we think the prior action was illegal. And that particularly if we're talking about things like permits, and the Trump administration has been very aggressive in trying to issue and finalize permits these last several months, I think there is some reason to to suspect that that the Biden administration will not be able to do things like revoke per, permits very easily, um, not without, at the very least, doing extensive legal background or, and legal work to justify it. Uh, I think that's a consequence of the DACA decision, and I think that's something that I would I would think they're looking at because... Um, you know, the Trump administration tried to cement in place a lot of projects by issuing permits uh, very quickly before before leaving office. Uh, Gene, can I ask you a question about the infrastructure side of things? Uh, in in pursuing a, a, a renewable uh, energy power grid, there's going to be a lot of, of challenges, perhaps in in infrastructure build out. Uh, Congress was aware of this years ago in the Energy Policy Act of 2005. They tried to accelerate some interstate uh, power grid development and they found mixed results in the courts. It's something that was grappled with at the state level um, during the Obama administration, especially. And I'm just curious how you see that side of things. What can be done, if not in legislation, then on the regulatory side um, to, to, to accelerate the, the build out of, of a green power grid? Sure. Well, you mentioned one of the main tools with respect to citing from EPAC 2005. Uh, Congress essentially recognized that states were blocking these needed interstate lines, and you would have one state uh, that basically was saying no, and all the other states saying go. And that authority still exists with DOE, and I think that's something that could be dusted off, and essentially DOE could start using that authority to designate national interest electric transmission corridors essentially trying to look at where there's high renewable zones and bringing that power into, uh, you know, where the market. And so they really could exercise that authority. It hasn't been used since it was first passed. There were some court cases that got in the way, but there really aren't barriers. So I think, and then FERC, once they designate the corridors, FERC has backstop siting authority. So if the state does uh, say no, in a year, they can essentially overrule it. Um, and there was a court case about that as well, but it only applies to the Fourth Circuit, so there's really no reason FERC couldn't use it outside of that. And then I guess the really other big issue is uh, transmission planning and cost allocation, which are in the purview of FERC. And I think FERC could do quite a lot on that. FERC already has an Order 1000 where they can start planning for public policy requirements and make regions do that. So if there's a federal, uh, say, carbon tax, then the regions would start to have to plan for transmission to meet those targets. So that's kind of a tool that really hasn't been used a lot and would be a huge one, especially in the re, uh, relationship to kind of any kind of federal climate program. I mean, it's, we talk a lot about the Clean Air Act and how the courts might construe it. I mean, if, if FERC uh, pushes I mean, pushes the envelope, might, the phrase might beg the question, right? But but if FERC gets particularly creative on, on, on its use of the Federal Power Act, isn't there a risk that that it'll run into similar problems in the Supreme Court and the lower courts trying to narrowly construe that old statute to, to limit FERC discretion? 
And so I was actually referring to things that they've already used in existing authorities. So I think the one would be if, if FERC imposed a carbon pricing on regions rather than having regions, uh, say one of the regional grid oper operators propose a carbon pricing, essentially reflecting state determined uh, carbon pricing in their markets to FERC and FERC approves it. I think FERC has already said they have authority. I don't think that's stretching the FARC Federal Power Act. If FERC were to go out and unilaterally and sui sponte impose something like that on the regions, I think that would be potentially something that would end up in the court. But all the things that I've mentioned are essentially existing authorities and just tools that have been just underutilized by FERC and DOE. Does anybody else have thoughts on the infrastructure side of things before I move on? Yes, like I said, I'm always in marketing. And a couple of years ago, uh, James Coleman of Southern Methodist wrote a Gray Center working paper, sort of walking through a lot of the, the NEPA issues for both pipelines and power lines. So if you're interested in that, uh, look up our website. Let's focus on the legislative side of things. Obviously, it's, we have three lawyers, not three political scientists. But I'm, I am very curious to hear your thoughts on either the prospects for or the need for legislation Um Let's start with, with, with on the regulatory side of things. Um, do you think, do you expect to see a, a, a credible push in Congress and, and do you think it's, it's necessary? And, and I, my wrinkle on that question is I always worry or I, I think that if the agencies are already sort of outlining a regulatory agenda, it's going to take a lot of the wind out of the sails of a legislative process anyway. I sometimes wonder if, if, if in 2009, um, the Lisa's energetic policy uh, agenda in, at the EPA might have relieved some of the pressure off of Congress to actually negotiate on legislation. How should we think about the upcoming Congress and what it might do or should do on, on legislation? Gene, would you like to start? Sure. And I actually look at it the other way. I actually think uh, regulatory action can often spur congressional action because if you have a whole bunch of states and under the Clean Power Plan that have to come up with compliance plans, they'd rather have sometimes the certainty of having a federal program. Um, so, and certainly the businesses that have to interact in 50 states would rather have kind of not 50 state plans they have to go through. So sometimes that actually can help be an impetus to kind of driving uh, congressional legislation. As for the chances of stuff moving uh, comprehensive uh, climate legislation at the federal, congressional level, um, as I said, kind of in the, my opening remarks, I don't think the prospects are that great. For something like a carbon tax, that clearly does not seem to be um, likely. However, things like a clean energy standard do seem to be building bipartisan support and something that more uh, of Democrats like Manchin and others might be able to get behind and Republicans as well. Again, you need to probably go over the 60 threshold vote if you're gonna do that. And something like a clean electricity standard might be able to do that. Carbon tax, certainly not. I think some other things are things like carbon neutral tax credit could move in reconciliation and it's very likely to. And that's essentially taking all the tax credits and putting it into one and linking it to carbon. So, and Wyden being the head of finance now, and he, he has already introduced uh, such a bill I think that's likely. Um, but then with having Manchin being the head of ENR as a committee, it really is hard to see something like a carbon tax or other, uh, you know, some, or cap and trade moving there. So I'll stop there. Yeah. Thanks, Gene. I see in the, in the Q&A, Richard Pierce asked specifically about a, about a carbon tax and whether Congress might enact it. So thanks for touching on that. Jonathan, do you have any thoughts on the legislative side of things? Just a couple of thoughts. I mean, one is from the standpoint for climate change in particular, I think that given the legal environment uh, and given the statutes on the books, if 
your goal is to meet the sorts of, of goals that the Biden administration has embraced, that have generally been embraced by uh, the environmental community, um, you need far more tools than the federal government currently has. Um, and if the EPA can't jury rig them from existing statutes, then you, then, then they need more. Um, I, I think that, and you further, um, because of the nature of greenhouse gases and the nature of, of the, the, the climate problem, um, you want earlier reductions if you can get them, right? You don't want to wait. And uh, that, I think, also suggests that the focus on regulatory strategies, given the time that's involved in the regulatory process and the legal risk, has the added downside of delaying um, uh, reductions. And so I think that, that Congress, in, in thinking about this question, should, I don't know whether they will, but should recognize that given some of the staffing and other problems that, that Lisa pointed out at the very beginning that the EPA faces, that a bill that gives EPA and maybe DOE lots of new regulatory authority, imposes lots of administrative deadlines for it, for exercising that authority, tend to have it done all through the regulatory process, is likely to be disappointing because agencies don't meet the deadlines they have now. Um, uh, public interest groups are suing DOE and EPA all the time for failing to meet their existing set of deadlines. And so throwing dozens more on them isn't going to really uh, solve that problem. The other thing I would point out is that um, fiscal measures like a carbon tax uh, can be adopted through reconciliation. They don't, uh, and so they, they, they can be uh, done without needing to worry about the 60 vote threshold. Uh, I know that there's a belief that, that, that the, such fiscal measures like that are less viable than some alternatives. Um, I'm in Ohio. What do I know? But I'm skeptical of that. I know here in Ohio, we did some shifting of, of fees where we increased fees on energy production as a way of lowering other taxes. Uh, I think that there, if it's, if it's pitched right and phrased right, uh, there is more potential support for that um, among at least some Republicans than people sometimes think. And I think if the choice is that or giving EPA more authority to pressure states to regulate, more authority to go sector by sector and impose regulatory standards, I think that there are a lot of folks who view the use of fairly straightforward fiscal tools and fiscal instruments as as less intrusive to liberty, less bureaucratic, and I think of particular significance in the context of climate change in particular, the sort of things that can actually be adopted and implemented far more rapidly than the regulatory alternatives. And, and that we just know from experience both in the United States and in other countries in looking at the implementation of climate policy. Thanks, Jonathan. Lisa, do you have any thoughts on the legislative side of things? Well, I, I do think that we're going to need some new legislation, some new regulatory power if we're going to meet the, the level of need that's caused by the, the problem. But that doesn't need to come all at once. It can come in pieces. It can come like the HFC's legislation came in the, the, the um, uh, spending bill recently passed. It, it can come in ways other than in the Obama administration. It was all about comprehensive climate legislation. And, and that sounds great, but it may be that there are things you can do here and there 
Um, and I, I, I agree with Jonathan about the idea of co-benefits. What I think of it as is over-determined regulations. Are there regulations that have so many good things about them that you would do them? Even if it were just about climate, you'd do them. Even if it were just about conventional air pollution, you'd do them. Even if it were just about water pollution. If you take those, maybe there can be a legislative response on some of those issues that have those just cross-cutting multiple overlapping um, good consequences. And for those, maybe an answer could come legislatively, or maybe that's a way for EPA to think about its priorities. In the questions, uh, Courtney Rosen of uh, Bloomberg Government asks about uh, the Biden administration's ability to leverage its own agencies, not on the regulatory side of things, but just through the federal government's expenditures. Uh, she asks, can we talk about how President Biden could leverage the spending of the federal government to combat climate change? Uh, given that the federal government, its agencies, for example, the, the, the Pentagon, you know, they emit a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. They're in a position or they're, they're connected to greenhouse gas emissions. They're in a position to perhaps leverage their spending to, to reduce that. What uh, strategy should the Biden administration pursue on that side of things? Anybody have any, any thoughts on that? I'll just jump in and say that that there are opportunities in in the procurement process, certainly, um, both through what sorts of procurement the government engages in, also through um, structuring procurement policies in a way to essentially reward uh, vendors that are going to be able to deliver something in a lower impact way or a lower carbon way. Um, you know, there's also increasing interest at the Department of Energy of uh, following the lead of, of the Defense Department and DARPA in particular um, in finding ways of using a traditional or reallocating traditional R&D investment in ways that leverage that investment, the use of prizes or other mechanisms that are really focused on driving innovation more aggressively than simply giving money to research labs. Uh, and there's been more money uh, over the last several years that's been made available for those sorts of things. There's the ARPA-E program in DOE. Uh, is one example of that. And so there are some opportunities there. My impression is there are folks involved in the Biden transition that pay a lot of attention there. And, and the questioner is absolutely right that there are opportunities there uh, that certainly the Trump administration was not focused on that the Biden administration could pursue uh, with relatively little legislative or other resistance. Gene, is this something that American Clean Power has been working on? Yeah. Yeah, federal procurement's a huge one for us. And I think uh, today, uh, under the Trump administration, there is a uh, statute that requires federal procurement, but it's about 7%. I think it's fallen back below where Obama was. Um, and it's uh, around 10% um, renewables are procured by uh, federal government agencies, but it could be much higher. But there is one congressional fix that needs to be made to actually have that happen. So uh, for power purchase agreements, there is a congressional statute that requires them to be limited to 10 years, except for the Department of Energy. So get, getting rid of that, because essentially most uh, renewable generation won't enter into a 10-year contract. They're typically much longer, and there's really no need for that type of limitation. So getting Congress to lift that would really open it up. And federal procurement really should be in, you know, in the years that first term of a Biden administration be somewhere almost at 40%. So. We're almost out of time, and, and I do want to give each of the panelists a chance to offer some closing thoughts. Um, one, one issue I'll raise that they can or, or they can either react to or, or ignore altogether is just the, the question about long-term policy stability. 
We've seen from the Bush to Obama to Trump to Biden administrations, such wild fluctuations in policy. And of course, that's really no way to run a country, no way to run a, a business. And my guess is that the regulated industries are trying to figure out, you know, what's the long-term policy equilibrium and, and how do we get towards that? And my guess is both political parties, their objective is to set that long-term uh, equilibrium and the expectations, whether they're in office at a moment or not. I'm just curious, are there any prospects for stability on this in either in good ways or bad ways? Um, and more broadly, if you have any, any closing thoughts on what we've discussed, we'd, we'd welcome them. I mean, we'll go in the order that we started. We'll start with Lisa. I think that is a huge question and an important question. Yeah, sometimes I felt like, you know, as an EPA, sometimes I felt like all we did from administration to administration was pass the same ball back and forth, back and forth. A rule gets initiated, then somebody draws it back, and then does something new, and then it draws back. It's a crazy way to govern. It doesn't solve the problems I care about, and it doesn't give certainty to the people who um, who are worried about the, um, the agency's regulatory actions. And I don't know, there is an inter international law, um, this will probably make some people's heads explode, but an anti-backsliding principle that says once the environmental principle or rule is locked in, that's a kind of social benefit. That's a consequence that we should protect. And so you can't backslide environmentally. I don't expect that to happen anytime soon in this country, but I agree with that um, problem. I agree that this is a problem and it'll actually be in the Biden administration's power to decide, look really carefully and decide maybe there are some policies that don't need to go back and forth. Maybe there are some things that can be left. I don't know if that's true, um, but it's part of that question. Well, thanks, Lisa. And thanks again for, for joining us. Um, Gene, any closing thoughts? And with respect to that issue, I think the ping pong effect you get from one administration to another is largely from congressional inaction, because once you get Congress to speak on something, there's usually some certainty for a certain amount of time. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act is a good example. You have solicitor opinion from one administration, revoking and repealing the one from the prior, and it just goes back and forth. And at some point, to get any type of certainty to issues like that, you really need Congress to step in. And unfortunately, since they're not stepping in, you often get the courts that are deciding, and I'm not sure the courts should really be the ones deciding these issues, like they might on the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. But it really would be better for Congress to be doing it. Um, and I think, but until Congress is willing to do something, I think where I might differ with some of the other panelists, um, it's more because I'm a policy advocate and trying to get certainty for you know industry. I think having as many regulatory actions, using as many tools in the toolbox that the Biden administration can do, if they're serious about, you know, reaching these goals, you look back at the Obama administration, everything was a little bit too late and they took risk and some of them didn't work. But if they had taken them a little bit earlier and were a little bit more ambitious, we might have gotten more done. So I hope the Biden administration, even if Congress doesn't act, will try to step in and fill that gap. Thanks, Gene. And, and Gene, thanks uh, to you two for joining us today. And we'll let Jonathan have the, the last word. Yeah, I mean, policy stability is certainly important. It's especially important for regulated entities, whether they're in the private sector or in the public sector, just for planning purposes, knowing what the rules of the road are going to be. I think through much of environmental policy, there's generally been the idea that once a rule has been on the books for a certain period of time and people have, have adjusted their expectations accordingly, you kind of leave it in place. And there, there have been certain uh, air context, mercury being one example that ping pong back and forth for a while because they never quite get to that settlement 
But for most of environmental policy, that's been the norm. Uh, and I think in part because industry typically, once they've invested in a rule, they have no interest in going in, in undoing it. Um, what's been interesting about the Trump administration is that I think largely for ideological reasons, it's been willing to to, to question and, and threaten to unsettle settled rules, even when there wasn't necessarily benefit for particular industrial groups because there was op- ideological uh, opposition to the rules. Um, I think that will that will be an aberration. I think when we look back, uh, um, because I do think that as a general matter, um, when you're dealing with the regulatory context, you're talking about how investments are made, how infrastructure is built, how local, state, and local governments implement programs. That once a rule is in place and you've adjusted to that rule, let's move on. There are going to be plenty of new problems to deal with. We can fight over the best solution to that problem, but we don't really get very far uh, if we're we're continuing to revisit the same question over and over. But obviously, we'll, obviously, we'll see. And I think Gene's point is is a very good one that when legislation comes in, that should settle the matter. Uh, and in the case of Congress, you know, we have not seen real serious environmental legislation in quite some time. You know, once a decade these days, Congress might you know, revise TSCA and then it goes back into an environmental slumber for, for another however many years. And, and that undermines stability as well. Thanks, Jonathan, and thanks to our audience for joining us today. Just a reminder, today's discussion is the second in a series that we're calling The Administrative State in Transition. Future discussions will be announced on our website, on our social media, and on our email list, so please stay tuned. While we haven't formally announced our next one, uh, please save February 11th for a conversation on the future of tech policy. Until then, on behalf of the Gray Center and the Scalia Law School, thanks for joining us.